you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Hey, Kaleo. I'm pretty sure I said this last time, but um, I, I'm just a Kaleo groupie, you know, like I... I am on the board here because I love it. I believe in your leaders here so much. Um, I consider them like, even if I don't get to hang out with them every day, because if I live down the street from them, I really would. But they're just deeply rooted in Jesus and believing for just this beautiful multi-ethnic community of God, putting Jesus on display. And so I like love them. So I'm like a, I'm like a Aaron and Chris groupie, you know. So I'm a, a Kaleo groupie. So I live like east of here, East Valley-ish, even though I'm not from here. And I'm like, am I really East Valley? There's like an hour and a half past me that goes even farther east. But apparently like Tempe area, Tempe, Awatuki is like East Valley. And I'm like, really? I feel like y'all need to recalibrate Phoenix. But, but apparently I am. So thanks for letting me spend another Sunday with you guys. I also apologize in advance. I feel like I always tell sports stories. Because I was an athlete, so there's so much of my life. So I'm like, you know, just everybody gets a lot of sports stories from me. So I'm, I'm going to start off with another sports story. Go figure. But um, so uh, I played basketball at UCLA like a long time ago. I'm way washed up, like way washed up. You know what I'm saying? But um, my senior year at UCLA, we were playing in the Pac-10 championship. And yes, when I played, it was the Pac-10, which exposes my age a little bit. Um, and now it's all messed up because I'm, I know I don't even want to go there because the fact that we're going to the Big Ten is going to make me cry and weep up here. And I'm not joking, but it's if you don't follow sports, I'm sorry. But if you do, you feel my pain. But so my senior year, we're playing in the Pac-10 championship. So it's the it's the Pac-10 tournament. If you know, if you follow women's basketball, even a little bit, you know that like the cream of the crop in the pack is Stanford. So we are playing Stanford for the championship my senior year at the Pac-10 tournament. It's crazy. It's, like, intense. It's the, the type of, um, as an athlete, like, you long for these. These type of games are kind of what you live for. And they also make you totally nervous. But so I go, I get subbed in uh, in the first six minutes of the game. And then I quickly get two fouls real quick, and then I get subbed right back out just a few minutes later. So I'm discouraged about that. But, you know, kind of same thing happens in the second half. But what happens in the game is we go on and we actually beat Stanford. Right, which doesn't happen that often. So we beat Stanford. We're the Pac-10 champions that year. It's like the victory of our careers, you know. And so we're in the locker room after the game and we're taking pictures with the trophy and we've got, you know, we're like hugging it, we're kissing it, all the things you see people doing when it comes to a championship. And all the while, I'm like, man, this is the most, this is one of the sweetest moments of like my career. And yet inside, I'm feeling some type of way. I'm hiding it on the outside because I'm like, this is the most celebratory moment people live for this. But on the inside, I'm really struggling. I'm kind of salty. And I'm like, what is, you know, I probably wasn't super emotionally mature at this point in my life. But I'm like, what the heck is going on with you? You know, I'm like ready to cuss myself out to like get your stuff together. But I realized that I was struggling 
because I feel like I only had a few minutes to play, right? I only played a few minutes in the first half, a few minutes in the second half. And I realized I'm not feeling like I contributed enough to earn this sweet victory, right? I'm, feeling, I'm not feeling like I didn't, I didn't play enough minutes to be able to claim this victory as a part of my story. And I'm feeling that. And it's, it's got me all messed up in my heart. So I hate that I feel this way. I hate that I'm feeling this way. This is supposed to be right like ugh, the peak of celebratory moments, moments of your basketball career. Right, but I can't shake this perspective that I did not contribute in the way that I felt like I should have contributed. I couldn't enjoy the victory because I was caught up with earning my place at the trophy table. I couldn't enjoy the victory because I was, it was being able to say that I earned this badge of honor by my significant and impressive contribution. So it messed me up. It messed me up. And so this, right, this is just one game. This is over. This is a moment in a lifetime. But I actually don't think I'm alone in this belief. I don't. I think that most of us, some of us, if not most of us, we've been conditioned this way. Because like, I think there's this thing in our culture, um, especially right now, we just tend to think bigger is better. Bigger platforms, right? Bigger platforms, they mean greater influence and greater impact, which means greater deserving of honor, right? We, this is just, I think this is ingrained in us. So my tiny contribution of six to 10 minutes in a game that lasted 40 minutes, it felt more like a disgrace than an honor. And I could not live into the celebration, which is so sad when I think back about that, right? So today, um, in my, my ch church that's, you know, on the east side where I live, we've been going through First and Second Samuel. And so I've been reading it a lot. So today, I was like, well, I'm about to kick it in Second Samuel then. Because I've been living here for the last few months and reading it a lot. And so um, I hope that today as we look in Second Samuel 9, that we can see ourselves a little more clearly but even more so that we can see God a little more clearly through David's life in 2 Samuel 9. So uh, if you have a Bible, turn there. But if you don't, you can just listen. Like I said, I'll read it. So it's like story time. Actually, I'm about to get my phone so I can read it. Sorry, thanks, Chris. <laughs> because um, I brought my little Bible, but the writing is too small. And I think I'm getting old because it's harder to read. And I usually don't have that problem, but I all of a sudden have it a little bit. So I need to get it together. This is bigger though. So, so <laughs> here we go. In uh, 2 Samuel 9, I'm going to read the first three. But it says, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? So before we jump into this, this is what I want to say. We're in 2 Samuel, but it actually starts up with what you can see with King David. And he's just been crowned king a few chapters before this. And he is actually mourning and grieving the death of his enemy. And when I say enemy, I mean literally a dude who 
tried to have him murdered off and killed. So he really was his enemy. And that enemy was Saul, right? And Saul preceded David as the king because Saul messed around and disobeyed God. And so God removed, if y'all remember this, God removed his favor from King Saul. Okay, and so this, that began the, the beginning of his demise and his downfall. So then David eventually became king, and he has this string of victories and successes in his kingship um, where he defeats other armies and ultimately he receives blessing from the Lord. So David, keep in mind right here, he's at like his peak, right, of his influence. And keep in mind, it would have been quite normal for a king to eliminate constituents from the prior kingdom before him. Okay, so this is where we're picking up. And so we have David here coming in saying, is there anybody left in the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness to for Jonathan's sake? So David, he is looking for anybody alive that's a relative of Saul, that's in Saul's bloodline, looking for anybody who's alive that I can show God's kindness to for Jonathan's sake. So it says Saul had a servant named Ziba, right? And so he was summoned to appear before King David to help answer this question. So David, he's desperately looking for this. He asks again to, the, to Ziba this time, is there still someone left, anybody from the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? And I imagine um, some of us are sitting here like, that's weird as heck. Like, why is he so, that's weird. Like, why do you keep asking that, David? Like, move on. Right? Why is David so determined to find somebody alive from his enemy's family to show kindness to? What is this about? And so here's what y'all need to know. Because back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, this is during all the drama when Saul was trying to have David killed. So during this time, the dad of, the dad of Saul, David's enemy, was a guy named Jonathan who was David's bestie for the restie. So David's like ride or die best friend was a guy named Jonathan and he was the son of David's greatest enemy. Okay, so David and Jonathan in the midst of all this, they made a covenant with one another. They made a covenant with one another that said David promised Jonathan he will never cut off his kindness. He will never cut off his kindness from Jonathan's family even after the Lord destroys all of David's enemies, right? So I, I imagine they could have foreseen maybe a day like this coming, but David was like, I'm making a covenant with you. I will not cut off my kindness from your family. So really what's happening here, why he's asking these weird questions when we want to be like, move on. <laughs> the, he, what's really happening is David is devoted to this binding promise that he's made with Jonathan, right? Where he is seeking out somebody, anybody who got a pulse, from the house of Saul, Jonathan's family, so that I can be faithful to my covenant that I made with Jonathan. That's what's going on. So it sounds weird, but I'm like, okay, David, I respect it. I respect it, right? So then we come in. So he's, he's asking, he's begging, hello, Ziba, anybody, where can I find somebody? So here we go in 2 Samuel 9, this is 3 through 6. And he says, where is it at? Three, okay. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. 
when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. So we find out there is one. There's one guy from the house. There is one leftover. There's a guy from the house of Saul who David can show God's kindness to on behalf of Jonathan. And so Ziba told David, it's this guy, Mephibosheth. And so David had Mephibosheth brought. I always often think when I'm saying his name to him, like Mephibosheth. I got to say it over and over. If I could give him a nickname, I'm like, I'd probably call him Fibs. You know, something. I don't know what y'all. I like tend to put things in one syllable. So I, I'd be, you feel that, you know? I don't know if it's athlete thing. If it's just a, but so I'd be like Fibs or I don't know. That's probably what I'd call him. But he, so he brings Fibs. Right out in front of him. <clears throat> and if I'm Mephibosheth in this moment, I just got summoned by the king. I'm shook. I'm terrified if I'm Mephibosheth, Mephibs, because the king holds power over, the life, over life and death of his people. Right? The king holds a lot of power. And he's being summoned to come before this king who his grandfather tried to kill. So if I'm Mephibosheth, I'm like, okay, this is either really, really good or it's about to be really, really bad for me. And I'm not sure which one it is when I'm him. So Fibs gets there and I picture him, he's like, he's lame in both feet. So your boy is crippled. It, it means too, he probably couldn't take care of himself. He couldn't get around on his own. He relied on other people to do all of that. And he's trembling with his self that can't even walk before the king, you know, saying, Yes, I'm your servant. Okay, and then David says, Mephibosheth. And we pick it up from there. This is what he says. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, well, yeah, the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and told him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, your grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So this is crazy because David, Mephibosheth's like, he's going to, he can take my life right now. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, uh, I, when I read this, and I've read it over and over again for a few weeks, I picture, and this is also going to expose my nerdigy, a nerd alert a little bit, but I do, I am someone who watches like Lord of the Rings. And I don't tell anybody because I like to keep it under wraps. But there's this, there's this moment in the third Lord of the Rings movie. And if you don't know what it is, I don't even know if I could explain it to you. But basically, darkness is taking over the world. And they entrust these like little tiny, the tiniest and most insignificant people in all of Middle Earth to do the biggest job of the whole thing. Um, to take this ring and go to this big get through all the enemies of everywhere and throw a ring into the mountain of fire. And you're like, what kind of stuff are you watching? I know, it's super nerd alert. But at the end, you know, 
the little most insignificant people called the hobbits, they accomplished this huge big task and they essentially they saved the world. And it's at the end and there's like humans and elves and all these other things. <laughs> and they're all way bigger, done way bigger things. And um, they, they're all bowing down to this new king who's finally been restored as the rightful king of this human kingdom. And so the hobbits, they go to bow down and bow, kneel to the new king too. And the king walks up to these little hobbits and he lifts up their head and he's like, my friends, you bow to no one. And it's this moment of this huge position shift and it switches everything up, right? Because they're, they're not supposed to be the ones who do that. It, everything is, it's a role reversal, right? Mephibosheth is broken, crippled, in fear, bows to honor the king, but the king returns, lifts his face and says, don't be afraid, right? And then he says, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then he says, I'll restore all the land that belonged to your grandfather, who was my enemy who tried to kill me, by the way. And you'll always eat at my table. And this is what he tells this lame grandson of his greatest enemy. And it's this crazy act of acceptance, of bestowing um, honor and prestige to a dude who was a nobody. To a dude who was a nobody, except that he was a somebody because he was from the house of Saul. Right? So Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should have such regard for a dead dog such as me, right? So David sees Mephibosheth as more worthy than he can even see himself. And how many times is that us? When God looks at us and he sees someone so worthy, he, God sees us more worthy than we can ever see ourselves. Uh, so I see God in David in this moment, right? But check it, this is not the king's kindness. It doesn't even stop there. Because here's what he did. He summoned Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, right? And he tells Ziba that he and his sons are to farm the land and bring the crops to support Mephibosheth and serve him as they serve Saul. So he's like, not only will you always eat at my table, and I'm going to provide for you for the rest of your life. I'm going to have your grandfather's servants tend to the crops and serve you the same way. And you are gonna have, you're going to be provided for and cared for. For the rest of your life. And then at the end of this Second uh, Samuel 9 verses 12 and 13. It says that Mephibosheth himself had a son named Micah. And so that means Micah would also, right, his son would now also be provided for too. So David's loving kindness, the king's kindness, it would be faithful through generation after generation. Passed down and passed down. All because he said, I am going to be committed to this covenant that I've made with Jonathan. And there's a word in here that I've said it a lot. <clears throat> but there's much more meaning to this word in Hebrew than we can pick up just by reading it or hearing it in English. There's just, it's hard <laughs> in translation that meaning gets lost a lot. And to us, this word is simple, right? Because the English word that I'm talking about is kindness. It's this word kindness. And the Bible often refers, the Bible says it as 
loving kindness. And we hear it a lot. It's the word that David uses multiple times in the story as he's looking for someone from Saul's family to show his loving kindness to, to show God's kindness to. Right? And the Hebrew word for this type of kindness that's used here is hesed. Is hesed. And hesed is also the word used for covenant. Back in 1 Samuel 20, when David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. So the way we describe this word hesed is devoted love promised with a covenant. Devoted love promised with a covenant. So for us today, maybe the closest example, the closest example we could understand this would be <clears throat> marriage. But even marriage a little bit falls short for us because we know like, the divorce rate is well over 50%. So I don't even think we can understand hesed in modern day marriage for us sometimes it's hard because hesed speaks to an everlasting covenant where there is no divorce. There is no option for it, right? It's this enduring promise that will never be forsaken. It's a devoted love that will not fail and through any circumstance, it will stand resolute. Right, this is chesed. <clears throat> so when David said to Mephibosheth, I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He's saying, I will surely act in chesed with you. He's saying, Mephibosheth, you didn't, you didn't do anything to be worthy of this honor that I'm bestowing on you. But my love and devotion is promised to you through covenant. And I don't play when it comes to my covenant. I don't play when it comes to my covenant, right? Because the very nature of hesed, this word, this loving kindness covenant, is that it's a loving kindness promised through a covenant that can never be forsaken, right? I will never forsake you. And, and so here's what actually takes this story that makes, and makes it really dope for us, right, as God's people, that through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, God made a new covenant with us, right? We know God made a new covenant with us, his people. And so now we're not talking just, we're not talking about Mephibosheth anymore, but maybe Mephibosheth's part in the biblical story points us to see God and ourselves more clearly as we participate in God's story, right? So God's love for us is a devoted love promised with a covenant, right? So like David to, to Phibs, to Mephibosheth, Jesus declared to us through his death and resurrection, I will surely act in hesed with you, my people, right? I will never forsake you. My loving kindness will never leave you because I have bound myself to you through covenant. I've bound myself to you through this covenant. And so I want to point... Back to the last verse of the passage for, for a second because I think it's important. It's really, I think it's really important. So the last verse, verse 13, it says, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. And uh, when I read that at first, I was like, and that's kind of a lame ending. Why I'm like, why, why would you end this beautiful story saying, and he was lame in both feet? 
right? This whole passage seemingly, this part seemingly out of place at first. It ends with this reminder of Mephibosheth's condition, which seems random and repetitive to me. But then I'm like, no, the writer was clearly doing something with this. The writer in 2 Samuel, this is intentional. And so the last verse, right, it it repeats that that Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table, though he was lame in both feet. We are reminded that Mephibosheth was broken. He wasn't impressive. He wasn't strong. He wasn't powerful or desirable. He was deficient. His body was deficient. He had nothing to offer. He had zero capacity to earn this kindness from the king. Right, the writer in 2 Samuel points us, though, to see ourselves in Mephibosheth. We are to see ourselves in Mephibosheth. We are broken people. Our, our bodies are broken, and with every day that passes, they are a day closer to death. Because y'all know death comes for all of us. Okay, so our hearts have got junk in them. Unforgiveness, resentment, anger, comparison, selfishness. There is dysfunction, not calling nobody out, dysfunction, toxicity, and drama in all our families, in all our relationships. We are crippled people. Some of us literally, right, there's ailments that we're physically crippled, but all of us figuratively, right, we're constantly leading out of a limp. We're unable to prove that we're honorable enough, that we're good enough by any amount of good things we try to do. We can't perform perfect enough to be worthy. We don't have impressive things and great works to offer God. And if we think we have really impressive good works to offer him, we can be assured that the Bible tells us that God sees our good works as filthy menstrual rags in Isaiah 64. So I'm like, our good works, our, our menstrual rags before God, we, we don't have anything to be impressive to God, and so it sounds like we're a lot more like Mephibosheth than we tend to think, than we, tend, than we want to be. We don't want to be that person that has nothing good to offer, but yet we look at this story, and when, when I see myself, I'm like, that's who I am. I'm destitute, and I have nothing to offer. Oh, but Jesus. Oh, but Jesus, because he exchanges our brokenness with our shame for a seat of honor at his table for all of our days, right? Oh, but Jesus, though we be unworthy, we be unacceptable in the eyes of the world or even in our own eyes, he is the covenant-keeping God who brings restoration to our brokenness, right? Oh, but Jesus, in all of our greatest deficiencies, he is the God who provides for our deepest needs. He is the covenant-keeping God who gives broken people a place of honor. He is, he is the heart of David towards Mephibosheth to honor his covenant that he's made with us. And so is it possible to live into this on a daily basis? Like it, it, what does this look like for us to live into this and be shaped and formed by the ways of Jesus? as we look at this little story in 2 Samuel 9 about a dude named Mephibosheth. And I would say 
three simple things. Because God gives broken people a place of honor, we have to remember who God is. So I want to read this uh, poetry from Psalm 111 to you real quick and just hear these words as I'm reading it. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. There's a lot you could catch, but did you catch he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered, right? He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown all, he has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. This is poetry that beckons us to remember who God is and the mighty, powerful works that he's done. This beckons us to this and to remember his faithfulness and his loving kindness towards us, right, his, his has said towards us. So we remember who God is. And then two, because God gives broken people a place of honor, we remember who we are. We remember who God is and we remember who we are because we are broken like Mephibosheth, yet we are chosen, Right, that's, that's the hesed, right, that we're not chosen because we're amazing all the time and super awesome and why wouldn't God choose us? That we're not chosen because of that. We're chosen because God has bound himself to us in a covenant that he will never forsake. So despite our not awesomeness, we are God's chosen people and he will act in hesed with us, right, all over scripture. In Jeremiah and in the Psalms, we hear uh, these words, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have drawn you with my loving kindness. God is like, I have drawn you with hesed. And I think of, um, again, I'm like, all these movies, I'm kind of a nerd. But this is a Disney movie, Who's Seen Mulan, the cartoon from back in the day. So, yeah, so not the new Mulan, even though it's cool, but I mean like the cartoon Mulan. But I, this is another movie that kept coming to mind when I read this. Because if you know the story of Mulan, right, she takes her father's armor, she puts it on, and then she secretly, she um, acts like a male warrior and abandons her family to go fight in the war so her dad doesn't have to go. And this disgraced her family and it brought shame to them. But then you see the whole movie and she like leads the army to victory and they win the war and they defeat the Huns. And then she comes back to the point where she can finally return home. And she returns home knowing she's disgraced her family. They've experienced a lot of shame from her actions. And so she's going to go restore honor to her family. And so she brings the sword of their greatest enemy that she killed and she brings the crest, the golden crest from the emperor. And she goes home and she gets on her knees before her father and she holds out this golden crest 
this sword, basically these gifts from the emperor that would honor her family and show her family that honor has been restored to their home because she knows my dad is going to be so angry. He's so ashamed. And uh, her dad in the cartoon, you should go look it up on YouTube, he gets up and uh, he drops the sword and the golden crest and he just gets on his knees and he hugs Mulan. And he throws that stuff down and he said, the greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. Right, because remembering who we are, it brings us into our sonship and our daughterhood. That we remember we are God's, we belong to him. Right, it brings us into our, he always ate at the king's table and he was lame in both feet. Right, it helps us remember that that's who we are. We, we, we are lame in both feet, we're crippled. But God will seat us at his table to eat with him for all the days of our life. Right, so that's when we remember who God is. Like we remember our sonship and our daughterhood. And then thirdly and lastly, and this will be real short, but because God gives broken people a place of honor, we reaffirm our covenant to our covenant-keeping God. And here's what Hebrews 9 says. For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom and set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so this is said all over again, right, where Jonathan and Mephibosheth and David, they had their own said. This time it's between God's people, us, and himself, right? And this time everybody, Jew, Gentile, were all folded into the family as part of this new covenant through the shed blood of Jesus, right? So in this symbolic act where we believe the presence of God dwells and sustain us, sustains us through this act of receiving the body and the blood of Christ, right? We actually reaffirm this covenant with God that he has made with us. This act, right, the, the Eucharist, this act when we remember the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ for the sake of the world. And I would say it's never... Man, when I was a kid, I used to be like, pass the dang thing around. Let me take this little juice box and take it. But now, right, older, uh, Eucharist, it's never meant to be this monotonous or mundane act of just taking a piece of cracker and, and wine. But in fact, it's, it's a ceremony of renewing our vows of our covenant commitment with Christ, right? When we share in that meal together. Right, we reaffirm our covenant our, that God will act and has said toward us. So would y'all bow your heads and pray with me as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your covenant. Lord, thank you for has said that you will not forsake us, that you will live out this covenant for all eternity, that you could never turn your back on us, but that you will show us your kindness because you've bound yourself to us in covenant. Um, Jesus, I pray that you would help us call to mind Mephibosheth, that we would see ourselves in him, in his brokenness, in his lame feet. Lord, that we would be reminded that though we are broken and lame and unworthy, 
we think we're unworthy, God, you will sit us at your table in a seat of honor, providing for us for all the days of our life. We are so grateful. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your mighty name. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.